Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1. And I'd like to uh, read for you verses 22 through 25. And the theme of this passage that we'll focus on is the command to love one another. Peter has been uh, guiding his readers who are elect pilgrims traveling on their way to this heavenly inheritance that he's described. And then he starts in verse 13, giving them a series of how they too should conduct their life on their way to the promised land, on their way to this incredible inheritance that awaits every true believer in Jesus Christ. In verse 13, he exhorted them to prepare their minds for action, keep sober in spirit, to fix their hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we need to live our life continually in light of eternity, looking ahead to just imagine all of the grace and glory that Christ has bought for us when He died on the cross for our sins. In verse 15, He exhorted them to walk their pilgrimage in this life, pursuing holiness of life. In verse 17, He exhorted them to fear God as they make progress in their pilgrimage. And now in verse 22, He exhorts them to love one another. So that as we live our life on our way to one day standing in the presence of Jesus Christ, we're to love one another. So I want to begin reading in verse 22, and I'll read down through verse 25, but we'll really just kind of stop and deal with verse 22 and deal with the rest of this, uh, Lord willing, next time. But Peter now writes in verse 22, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, these words for our edification and our blessing. He says, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all of its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. May the Lord bless the reading of His word. As you look at verse 22, where we want to concentrate our time this morning, he says that they have in obedience to the truth purified their souls. And we'll look at this a little more next week. This is probably a reference to their conversion. But they've purified their souls for a sincere love of the brethren. And since they've already done that, then Peter now commands them, exhorts them to fervently love one another from the heart. So let's kind of begin by talking about this concept of love how it should be preeminent in our lives that we love. Love God, of course, and love one another because those are the greatest commandments in the Bible. And the importance of love is merely set forth in that 
that if you distill the entire Bible into two commands, you have love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's how Christ answered, what is the greatest commandment in the Bible? Is those two. Love God and love our neighbor. So the importance of love, number one, is that it's the greatest commandment in all of Scripture, which means it's the one we must take the most serious. Take them all serious. But it's the most important. It's the greatest. Secondly, it's important. Love is important because it fulfills the law of God. Jesus went on to say that these two commandments of loving God and loving your neighbor in Matthew 22, on this depend the whole law and the prophets. And Paul said in Romans 13, don't owe anybody anything except to love one another for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law of God. So the second reason why love is so important is it fulfills the law. Thirdly, it's important because love in our life is an indication that there is spiritual life within us. In 1 John 3.14, John writes, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. And he who does not love abides in death. So how do you know that you're spiritually alive? John says, look at yourself. Do you love the brethren? That's the primary critical mark to look for. John went on to write in 1 John 4 that everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So if you don't love, then you do not know God because God is love. 1 John 4 verse 7 and 8. So it's an indication of spiritual life, of the new birth. Love is. The fourth reason why love is important because it's the chief mark of those who follow Christ. You say you're a disciple of Christ. Jesus told His disciples in John 13, verse 35, By this all men will know that you're My disciples if you have love for one another. If you don't have love for one another, people are not going to see you as a follower of Jesus Christ. If you don't love other people. Christ said, this is how the world is going to know that you're My followers. If you have love for one another. If you love one another, that will be a testimony to the world that you're following Me. You're My disciple. So it's a chief mark of those who follow Christ. Loving one another. Number five, love has the primacy among all other Christian virtues. Colossians 3 verse 14 says, And beyond all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Beyond all these things. And he's just given another list of other virtues. Compassion, kindness. And he says, above all that, put on love. It's the most important one of all. Above all those other virtues, put on love. As we have been reminded by Corey, In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, of the three virtues, faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. It's greater than faith. It's greater than hope. Love is a preeminent Christian virtue that we should be living out. And that's probably why when Paul wrote of the fruit of the Spirit, 
love is the very first one in that list. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. always mess up the order of those. And I usually leave one or two out. But it's put first in that list because it's the preeminent, the priority virtue of love. So when people think of you, what comes into their mind? Well, that's a loving person. It should. Love is a primary virtue of all Christians. should be. And number six, the importance of love is that without it we are nothing. We may think we're pretty something, but we're nothing. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. That's how important love is. So with that as somewhat of a background, we come now to verse 22. And Peter has reminded them that in obedience to the truth, they have purified their souls for a sincere love of the brethren. So this is something that was a part of their original conversion. We'll look at that more next week. But then he exhorts them to fervently love one another from the heart. So let's look at this command to to love one another. First off, this is one of a number of similar exhortations found in this first letter written by Peter. Just to show you the importance of this command. We see it here in verse 22. Look at chapter 2 verse 17 of this same letter. Peter writes, Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. There it is. Love the brotherhood. Fear God and honor the King. And then you turn to chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. So above all, no matter what else you do, keep fervent in your love for one another. And then finally in chapter 5, verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. By the way, that's cultural. We'll just do the right hand of fellowship or a hug or something like that. But greet one another with a kiss of love. A brotherly love for one another. So four times in this little letter, Paul has ex- uh, excuse me, Peter has exhorted them to love one another. Let's go back to chapter 1, verse 22, and let's begin to break this down a bit. He says, you purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Now, Peter actually uses two different words for love in verse 22. This first one is a love of the brethren. And that's the word in Greek is Philadelphia. We get our English word Philadelphia, this 
the city of Philadelphia is a city of brotherly love. So philos is the type of love which is normally describing a brotherly love, a friendship love, someone in the same family. So that's the first word that he uses to describe love. He says, you've already basically purified your souls for this love of the brethren. But he describes this love of the brethren as sincere, a sincere love of the brethren. And the word sincere literally means without hypocrisy. In Greek, it's the word hypocrisy with a negative on the front of it. And it's usually translated sincere. That is, no hypocrisy in it at all. In other words, the love of the brethren should be genuine. Not faked. Heartfelt. Not forced. The word for hypocrisy is used back in the day, the ancient day of actors who wore a mask over their face to represent some fictitious character and in the play they were pretending to be that character and they'd hold up a mask over their face and that word eventually became to be identified with a hypocrite kind of a two-faced person he has his real face but he's putting another face out in front and Peter is saying don't let your love be like that Let it be genuine. Let it be authentic. Don't just tolerate people with a smile that you're faking, but actually sincerely, genuinely, in a heartfelt way, love the brethren. And then he goes on to say in verse 22, and this is actually the commandment. Fervently love one another from the heart. Or from a pure heart, as some of your translations may have. The second word for love is actually found here. This is fervently agape one another. This is the agape love. A more familiar uh, reference to love. Where the brotherly love is more of a friendship, affectionate love for people within the family. This particular type of love, the agape love, is actually viewed as probably a a higher form of love. It's used for God's love. Uh, Philos is on one occasion, I think, also. But agape love here refers to a strong commitment of love rooted in the will, not the emotions or the feelings. It's a love that is a commitment of the will to do good to someone else. That's agape love. In other words, it's a desire not to get from someone, but to give to someone. To seek their good, not their goods. This is not a love that uses others for one's own advantage. It's a, an agape love where I have a commitment of my will to do good to someone else. That's agape love. Christ washed the disciples' feet as an act of Doing them good. Serving them. The fact that this love must be rooted in the will and not in the emotions is because this is a word that's used when we are commanded to love our enemies. Does anybody have warm, fuzzy feelings towards their enemies? We're probably like James and John. Lord, you want me to command fire to fall down from heaven on them. So we don't, we don't 
like our enemies. We don't have emotional feelings for our enemies other than we want to kill them or something. But we're to love them. We love our enemies. So it's rooted in the will. It's not rooted in the emotions or the feelings. The feelings may not be there, but the commitment of the will should be there. That's the agape love. He adds to that fervently. Fervently love one another, that is, other believers in the body of Christ, primarily, though we have an obligation to love everyone, but especially those in the household of faith. Love one another fervently. This particular word emphasizes with energy, with perseverance. Literally, this word fervently had the idea of stretching out an exertion. Like an, uh, it would be like an athlete, a sprinter that's running towards the, the tape. And he's trying to get there first and he's running and he's stretching out trying to break that tape first. The exertion, the energy of pushing forward with all of one's strength. This is fervence, fervency. And Peter says, let your love be described that way. A fervent love. A love that's willing to expend energy to do good to someone else. Not a passive, limp, or relaxed kind of a love, but a productive love, an active love, an energetic love. That should describe us. But with the athlete, this is a love that doesn't come natural. Agape love is actually, again, the fruit of the Spirit. So it's a supernatural quality of this love. And we need God's grace to actually love people this way. That's why, again, love is the first fruit mentioned in the fruit of the Spirit. This particular word for fervency, to just give you another picture of how it's used in the New Testament, was actually used of Christ praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Luke chapter 22, verse 44, says, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently. Same word. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down from the ground. And what this implies with our Lord's experience of praying fervently is that he was fully, totally engaged in his prayers. Totally focused. And he was expending such passion and energy in his prayer he he was so caught up his whole inner being was in such a turmoil that the sweat became to drip down on him that speaks of passion speaks of energy being fully engaged speaks of intensity and this is what peter is telling us don't let your love for others be just lukewarm Let it be intense. Let it be fervent. The reason why I think our love needs to be that way because it's not always received. And if you try to show love to someone and it's not received, it's easy to give up. I'm not going to try that again. But see, a fervent love is a love that will be repeated. A fervent love is a love that will persevere even if it's initially rejected. You keep coming back. It's a fervent love. You keep 
loving and loving. Unexpressed love is... There's really no value in unexpressed love. The Proverbs say, better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. It's like the husband that says, well, I don't tell my wife I love her. I told her that on the wedding day. I mean, she ought to remember it. One time is good enough. Well, it doesn't fly. Unexpressed love is really a, a defective love. And those who don't express it oftentimes live to regret it. He adds also here in this passage at the end of verse 22 that we fervently love one another from the heart. Or again, yours may have from a pure heart depending upon the textual preference of the Greek manuscripts. From the heart speaks to the depth of the love. The fervent fervently marks the intensity of the love. From the heart marks the, the depth of the love. In other words, the love should not just be from the teeth out, from the lips out. It should come from the heart. Too often times we just speak a word of, of love, but we really don't necessarily mean it. What Peter says is our love should be from the heart. The heart is the source of the whole inner being. The heart is the source of our thinking, our feeling, our volition. So in other words, it shouldn't be superficial. So we should love from a pure heart. So Peter is exhorting us to open the floodgates and let the full stream of that love gush forth. Now this is a love that comes from God. It's a love that we, we love because God first loved us. It's a love that comes from God who sent His Son to die on the cross and showed His love for us. And we're imitating that love. But it is a love that ultimately must come from God. But He exhorts us. He commands us to imitate that love. To show the same love for others that Christ showed for them when He came and died for them and paid the penalty for their sins. So, having exhorted us and commanded us to love one another from the heart fervently, what are some of the characteristics of that love? Well, I think there are many things, but let me just point out a, a few. Number one, this kind of a love, this fervent love from the heart that we love one another is a love that ministers to the needs of other people. 1 John 3, verse 17 says, Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. I think this is a, the point of Christ's parable when the guy wanted to know, justify himself, well, you know, I've kept all the law, and by the way, who's my neighbor? And Jesus told the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. The good Samaritan who went and helped the Jew that had been beaten up on the side of the road. 
The priest walked by. The scribe walked by. They didn't do anything. But the one who truly loves his neighbor was a Samaritan. And he stopped and he bandaged him. He carried him to the inn. He paid money to keep him there until he returned. That's love. It's love in action. It's ministering to the needs of other people. And it's interesting, in, in Matthew chapter 25, this suggests that this is going to be part of our judgment before the Bema Seat of Christ. When the king on that day will say, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And Jesus says to him, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to, to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invited you in or naked and clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. So how do we fervently love one another from the heart? We minister to people in their time of need. You know, one of the greatest blessings that I had the privilege of observing was the love of so many of you poured out to Penny in her last days. I was so blessed by that. People that would go by and visit with her. Ones who stayed with her just as a companion. Some that spent the night with her. Others that brought food to her. Others that came and sang to her. Others that came and read, read Scripture to her. Prayed with her. Encouraged her. This great outpouring of, of love was just an amazing thing to behold. And that's the kind of love, I think, that's talked about in this passage. Tertullian, who is a, wrote about a century later than John, the Apostle John, said that the pagans of his day marveled at the love that Christians had for one another. These are pagans looking at the church and they're utterly amazed at what they see. And he quoted the pagans in, in terms of their, just their reaction to the love that Christians had for one another. And Tertullian wrote that it is our care for the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Look, they say, see how they love one another, how they are ready even to die for one another. So that's part of the love. In other words, we should not go through life just totally focused on me and my needs without looking around and being sensitive to the needs of others around us. That's loving one another. So it's a challenge. And it's very convicting. But true love, the kind of love that Peter is exhorting us to, is a kind of love that gets out of ourself and is more concerned for others than for ourselves. A second description of this kind of love is a love that is quick to forgive offenses, sins, 
you know, we can sin against one another. That can happen. Does happen sometimes. But turn over to chapter 4, verse 8 again. And look at this verse that Peter reminds him of. It's very similar to verse 22 of chapter 1. Chapter 4, verse 8. He says, above all, keep fervent, same word as verse 22, keep fervent in your love for one another. And here's the reason, because love covers a multitude of transgressions, multitude of sins. So love covers it. If you're thin-skinned, when everybody, someone does something that you don't like, and you get all offended by it, and you hold a grudge against them, that's not love. Love covers a multitude of sins. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, when he's describing the characteristics of love, he says, love is not provoked, and love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Someone wrongs you. Love doesn't take it into account. Just lets go of it. Just forgives them. Moves on. The unloving heart begins to build a grudge. Begins to become bitter and critical. That's not love. Love covers a multitude of sins. It's kind of like back in the old whaling days when those Whalers would go out in a little boat and a whale would come up and service and they'd take their, their harpoons and they would just throw it and jab it into the whale and it would penetrate its thick fatty tissue and, and, and uh, stay, what's the word I'm thinking? Stuck. <laughs> and that whale will swim away with the harpoon stuck in his side with the rope tied on the harpoon leading back to the ship and he's going to drag those people with him. Now imagine if that whale could reach back if he had arms, reach back and pull out the harpoon and release it and he's free. He's free to move on. But as long as that harpoon is stuck in him, he is tied back to the offender. And there's a sense when, when people do things against you and they sin against you, it's like they're, they're jabbing a harpoon into your side or into your heart. And it can become embittered and infected and it can make you sick with anger and bitterness towards them. And what the love of Christ should do in our hearts is to have us to pull out the offense and to release it. And to forgive them and to move on. That's why Christ in the Lord's Prayer taught us to forgive our debtors as we forgive those who are our debtors as well. And those debts include spiritual debts or sins or trespasses that people make. We are to forgive them. And we're asking God, you forgive me because by your grace I'm forgiving other people. That's how important this love is. It forgives offenses. Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 wrote to the church of Ephesus. And he says, Be kind to one another within the body of Christ, within the church. Be kind to one another. 
tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. That's a great motivation. You've been sinned against. I forgive them, Lord, because look at all of my sins, my greater sins that You have forgiven me. I want to be like Christ. One of the hallmarks of Christ-likeness is to forgive other people. Because that's what Christ did to us. I've run into some people that say, well, we don't need to forgive people that sin against us unless they first come and repent and ask for forgiveness. Otherwise, I don't have to forgive them. I don't know if you've run into that. Maybe some of you all believe that. I don't take that position. I think when Christ was hanging on the cross and He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They weren't repenting. They weren't asking for the Lord to forgive them. But He was praying for God to forgive them, which implies that in His own heart He had released them as well. Later on, Stephen did the same thing when he's being stoned in Acts 7, verse 60. Falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Well, they weren't repentant. They weren't sorry. But you either carry that harpoon stuck in your side for the rest of your life or you pull it out and release it and forgive them and move on. So I think love forgives offenses. And may God help us to have that spirit within us as well. Another characteristic is we love other believers in spite of our differences. Now there's many opportunities for conflicts within the church, within the family of God, due to all the the differences that we have. Come from different backgrounds, cultural differences. That's why Paul in Galatians 3 said, that you know, within the body of Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. Now just imagine in the early church. You got all these Jews, they have the Mosaic Law. They're now worshiping, they're fellowshipping with all these Greeks who know nothing of that. Different backgrounds, different lifestyles, different all kinds of things. Mingled together, lots of opportunities for conflict, differences of opinion. And that's why Paul exhorts us again in 1 Corinthians 13 that within the body of Christ, with all the differences that we have, this is how we're to love one another. These are the qualities of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. doesn't brag. It's not arrogant. doesn't act unbecomingly. It doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So even in the cultural differences, uh, there should be love. In the theological differences within the body of Christ, <clears throat> there should be love. I think it was Augustine that is said to have taught in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. That's actually a motto that FIRE, the church association that we're part of, uses as well. In essentials, the essentials of the gospel, you've got to have unity. 
and non-essentials, a lot of the other teachings that we disagree on in the body of Christ, liberty. But in all things, charity, love. Love should bind us all, even with our differences. I love that story, you've probably heard it, of George Whitfield, five-point Calvinist, greatest evangelist that we've probably ever had in our country, one of the bright lights of the Great Awakening back in the 18th century, came over, preached to thousands of people. Benjamin Franklin stepped off uh, the crowd that George Whitfield was preaching to. Franklin never became a believer, but he, he had an, an admiration for George Whitfield. And he stepped it off and calculated that 30,000 people could hear this man's voice. That's how powerful of a preacher he was. Tens of thousands are reported to have come to faith through the preaching of the Calvinist evangelist George Whitfield. His good friend was John Wesley, the Arminian, held strongly to man's moral freedom to choose Christ, held strongly to Christian perfectionism. The two did not agree. Calvinist and an Arminian. They had heated disagreements over election, over limited atonement. And Wesley had preached a sermon on universal atonement. That is unlimited atonement. Christ died equally for everybody on the cross. Whitfield does not believe that. And he wrote a very powerful letter to John Wesley begging him, do not publish your sermon. You're wrong. It's unbiblical. Do not do that. So they had strong differences theologically. And one man came up to George Whitfield and asked him, do you think you'll see John Wesley in heaven? Now what a softball for someone that was ready to throw a theological jab at someone they differed with strongly on theological issues. You think you'll see Wesley in heaven? And Whitfield said, no, I don't think I will. And probably, I'm just speculating, the guy who asked that question probably said, yeah, it's because he's an Arminian. He's not going to heaven at all. But Whitfield said, no, I don't think I'll see him in heaven because John Wesley will be so close to the throne of God and I'll be so far back in the crowd, I don't think I'll ever see him. That is loving one another even in spite of certain theological differences. How about political differences? You know, it's interesting. I've often wondered about this. Christ chose 12 disciples. So what was Matthew? He was a tax collector. Who did he collect taxes for? The Romans. And then there's another guy that Christ chose, and his name was Simon. There were two Simons, two Judases, two James among the twelve. This guy was called Simon the Zealot. Now, what's a zealot? A zealot was a sect of the Jews. It's probably what it refers to when it refers to Simon the Zealot. It was a political group led by extreme wing of the Pharisee party. And they believed that only God had the right to rule over the Jewish nation, not the Romans. 
and they insisted on fighting the Romans, so they kind of became like freedom fighters, kind of guerrilla warfare tactics. And they, would, they revolted especially over the idea of having to pay taxes to Rome. And they insisted on fighting the Romans. Now, now, Simon had been a zealot. So Christ chose Matthew, the Roman tax collector, to join his group, along with Simon, the zealot. I mean, wouldn't you like to listen to some of their, theo- their, their political debates with one another? I think it would be quite interesting. The nationalistic patriotism and religion for the zealots were kind of inseparable. And yet, you know, it's interesting, the Bible doesn't record one fistfight that those two guys had. And don't you think it would have been interesting how they related to one another? But see, here's the point. Christ brought them together. It was the love of Christ for them that they began, they learned to live with one another, to love one another. And I don't know if their views modulated or changed. I'm sure they probably did. But this is love one another in spite of even those intensely held convictions. Well, can love fail? We're commanded to fervently love one another from the heart. Can that fail? Well, J.C. Ryle said, of all the commands of our Master, there is none which is so much talked about and so little obeyed as this. Love is difficult because our nature is to be so self-centered. John MacArthur said, the weed that always chokes the flower of brotherly love is self-love. So can love fail? Sure can. Unfortunately, it fails all the time. Peter knew about that too. He fell in his love for Christ. Denied Him three times out of a fear of man. It's interesting, later on in John 21, when the Lord restores Peter to ministry, what were the three questions He asked Peter? Do you love Me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Because he had failed in his love for the Lord. Sometimes I feel in my own failure in my love for the Lord, the need to be confronted by Christ and exhorted to renew that love to Christ. Sometimes love fails. Peter also knew what it meant to fail in his love for the brethren. Paul sadly refers to this incident in Galatians chapter 2. where We are obligated to love one another from different backgrounds within the body of Christ. There's no longer Jew or Gentile within the body of Christ. We are one in Christ. So Paul was at Antioch ministering. And here comes Peter up from Jerusalem. He comes in, begins to fellowship with the church there, predominantly a Gentile church. He begins to fellowship with them and eat with them. And then along comes certain men from James, from Jerusalem. 
And Peter feared being rejected by them and began to withdraw and hold himself aloof from the Gentile believers. Now probably those people from James that came up began to look at what the Gentiles were eating during their agape fellowship meals and looking at all that crispy fried bacon, all those pork loins that were on the table. And they were just, we can't, this is wrong. This is unclean meat. You can't do that. And they began to probably badmouth the believers to Peter or whatever they did. Say, you cannot have fellowship. They're in sin. And Peter began to withdraw from the Gentile believers and held himself aloof from them. He was pressured to get in line with the party line and he broke the principle of love and withdrew from them. He failed in his love for them. He stopped loving them. And he played the hypocrite and was not straightforward about the truth of the Gospel. And Paul said he had to oppose him to his face because Peter failed in his love for one another. So here's a man that's writing this letter who knows he's not perfect. He knows he's flawed. He knows he's failed. But he's exhorting the church, the churches that he's writing his letter to as he is exhorting us here today, as he is exhorting himself that with a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. So where do we stand here at Northwest Bible Church? Well, there's a lot of love that's being manifested here, expressed, which is a, a great joy and blessing. To those who are doing well, Paul would say, the Apostle Paul, as he told the church at Thessalonica, after he commended them for loving one another, He says, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Do more of it. You're loving the brethren. Do more of it. Excel still more. Because love is the premier virtue of the Christian life. It must be at the top of the list of what characterizes us in our relationship with one another. It's the fruit of the Spirit which gives us hope because when we do fail, we can confess it And pray for God to give us more of the Spirit so that He can work His love at a greater level within our hearts. Ultimately, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus because no one loves us better than Christ. He's the standard ultimately. He said, love one another as I have loved you. And we know love by this in 1 John 3.16 that He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So that ultimately our love for one another should flow out of Christ's love for us that is living within our hearts by His grace. So we merely love others with His love that He loves us. We're to imitate that love even to the level of laying down our lives for one another. Now again, this is impossible. But what's impossible for man is possible with God. So I leave you with this exhortation. 
when you think about your life this afternoon, when you think about your life in the coming week, think in terms of, am I loving the brethren? Am I loving other people? Because that's really the highest calling that we have in the Christian life. And if you're like me and you sense failure, that we come up short, we confess it, and we just pray for the Spirit of God to give us more of the fruit of His, which is, begins with love. So that we might grow in our love for one another. That's how we're supposed to live our life on our way to our heavenly inheritance. Is to love one another. May God help us to do that. For we need His help for sure. Well, let's close in prayer. Our Father God, we want to thank You, Lord, for being reminded by Peter of just the importance of this greatest of all Christian virtues to love one another. And Father, oftentimes we just get so into ourselves that we don't even care. We don't even think about. We're not interested in the brethren. Maybe their needs or their concerns. And Lord, we just pray that You'd forgive us. That You would cleanse us. And renew within us, Lord, that Christ-given, Spirit-produced love which only You can give. And may that grow in our hearts and lives. That when people look at us, they may say, that is a disciple of Jesus Christ. Look how they love one another at Northwest Bible Church. And Lord, may that grace be in us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.